the hope is not my ability as Stephen to craft a good apology. The hope isn't one of semantics. Uh, the hope is, is the creator that loves us and whose heart is for reconciliation. And so for our own good, even if that reconciliation never happens this side of heaven, for the, for the goodness of our own heart and for the goodness of our own relationship with, with the Lord, um, we have to always hope for that. Right. We have to always pray for that and, um, and be submitted to what that might look like, which will, will probably be hard. And, and so that, that's what that journey was like and that's what that um, connection was like and that's a little bit of what, what that has taught me. I've learned so much over this first year of podcasting and I wanted to share with you guys the 10 most life-changing lessons that I've learned this year. So I created a document and it's on my website. What you're going to do, you're going to go there. It's going to be 10 life-changing lessons. Click on that button. It'll ask for your email address so I can email it to you. Sign up for it because these life lessons radically changed the way I viewed my life and the way I started living. It helped me to get better in the areas that I've so desperately wanted to see progress and growth in. And because I know they helped me, I really believe that they will help you. And I wanted this to be a gift for you guys. So I really hope you enjoy this gift and go to the website, thewholepersonpodcast.com to get it. It's free. And I hope you guys enjoy and learn as much as I did from it. Our guest today grew up in the same small town of 25,000 people in Hayes, Kansas, just as I did. We both graduated from the same high school years apart. He then went on to college to Oral Roberts University, which so happened to be my alma mater as well. I've never had so much in common and yet so many differences with someone that I'm interviewing. Stephen Elliott is a former United States Army Ranger. Stephen has also published a book. He's an author, and the book is called War Story, which is a memoir of his military service. Currently, Stephen is the CEO of Capstone Trust and executive producer of Hero Productions. During the time of serving our country, there was a moment during an ambush on his team's position that led to them defending themselves by opening fire back. In this process, it led to the death of former pro football star Pat Tillman by friendly fire which is one of the most well-known friendly fire cases because of Pat's fame from football. Stephen was one of three that fired on Pat's position. While there was no way of knowing for sure if it was Stephen's round that hit Pat, but because he opened fire in that position, he feels responsible for his actions. Because of this event, Stephen has had to overcome a tremendous amount of guilt mental and emotional pain. And he shares his story today so that other service members who are going through trauma after their service know that healing can happen in one's mind and heart, that it is possible to forgive yourself and to live a healthier life, both mentally and emotionally. Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Evan. Thank you for having me. Good. Well, man, you know, first of all, I'm just excited to to talk to someone from my hometown. I know. I, uh, yeah, that's crazy. Dude, I, you know, I we have a mutual friend in the name of Brandon, and he told me about you and your story. And I was like, wait, this guy went, you know, is from my hometown, and then also same college. Like, how did I never hear of you before? Yeah, it's funny. So, 
it's good to officially meet you. Like, like I said in the intro, you know, we have a lot of similarities and probably a lot of inside jokes from, from school and even from right. uh, the hometown, but years apart. I, how old are you currently? I'm 38. 38. Okay. So I'm, I just turned 32. So we're, we're years apart from our schooling and uh, graduation and stuff like that. But man, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, of course. So just out of curiosity to, to start things off with, um, why, did, why did you choose to serve our country? Yeah, I mean, um, that was kind of going into my junior year of college at ORU was, um, you know, that was September of 2001. And I had never had, um, you know, other than as a child, you know, you play army and um, I had always admired my grandfather, um, Hugo, uh, who was uh, an artilleryman um, during World War II. He served uh, in Italy for a year and a half. And um, I always saw to some degree, I saw a manhood that was built upon the edifice of military service. Um, but then I sort of moved away from that. I was, um, you know, intent on, I was going to business school. I was, you know, considering going to law school and just never considered seriously um, doing anything with the military until 9-11 happened. And then um, that sort of changed everything for me because it, it felt like, um, it felt like, you know, my generation's fight and it felt like if I was ever going to serve, then now was going to be the time to do it. And, uh, it felt, uh, I didn't know when I joined, I didn't know if I was going to make the military a career. Um, but I felt at the very least, um, I, I needed to serve. And so, um, uh, it was in part in reaction to nine 11. So there was a, a service oriented component to it. Um, but then also, you know, as I, I can see more clearly, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, um, there were selfish motivations. Um, I'd like to say that it was all altruistic, but it wasn't. Um, part of it for me was trying to prove to myself and to the world that I was a man. And it felt like um, uh, a shortcut or a for sure way of doing that was serving in the military, uh, serving in the military during a time of war, and serving in the military during a time of war with a special operations unit. If you could do all of those things then you would know that you know that you know that you have arrived and that you're a man and that you're capable of anything. And I wanted to prove that to myself. And so um, in some respects, you know, war was just a pretext for that. And um, so I, I think like many things, certainly for me in that decision, um, there's usually more than one motivation uh, sort of driving us. And, and those were at least a couple of the motivations that were driving me at that time. So what led you to choose Army Ranger? because it was a harder division? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I, I had always had like army culture. I mean, I grew up in Kansas, so there's not much of a Navy culture in Kansas. <laughs> and, so, um, and, you know, my grandfather, you know, he was in the army. Uh, my, um, his brother Vic was in the army in Korea, and I'd had, you know, a second cousin was a, you know, retired colonel from special forces in the army. So I'd, I'd had a lot of like the military that was my family was mostly army culture, I suppose. Um, and um, I looked at, so that was sort of, I guess, the direction I was heading. And um, I felt like I wanted to, yeah, I, I wanted to challenge myself and see what I was made of. And so the choice kind of came down to whether or not I was going to go to the Q course, um, or excuse me, SF selection, Special Forces selection, or, or go to RIP, which is um, the Ranger Indoctrination Program, which is effectively uh, uh, BUDS for Army Rangers. Now that program is called RASP. Uh, which stands for the Ranger Assessment and Selection Phase, but um, either way, it's the it's the selection course to get into the Ranger Regiment, and um, 
it felt like uh, serving in the Rangers um, was um, was a good entry point into the special operations world. And if after four years I decided I was done, then I would have been presumably proud of what I would have been able to accomplish in four years. Uh, and if I wanted to go on and you know do any any one of a number of things in the military uh, after having served in regiment. Uh, serving in regiment uh, kind of helps open those doors. So that's that was sort of the the, the math that I did, and um, you know wanted to be in uh, you know what's considered an elite unit and see if I could do that. Mm. What was the process like going through training, Ranger School, and even becoming a part of an elite unit? What was the feelings, the emotions, the lessons learned behind all that? Um. A lot. I mean, it's, um, I think probably the, the biggest takeaway, uh, is that, um, you are, you, you learn just how you learn just how much you can do beyond what, if you allow yourself to do it. Um, the, the thing that I saw particularly within selection, well, first of all, a couple of things. One is, you know, selection for units like that are hard, um, because serving in those units are hard. And that was one of the truths that I began to realize that it wasn't just, it wasn't just like a fraternity hazing, like, Hey, you're not going to sleep for a couple nights, but after that, we're just going to drink beer for the next two semesters. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Like the training is hard and really difficult because that's exactly what the lifestyle is like. And so that was, that was a, a realization that slowly began to dawn on me once I got to the unit, because all of your focus is just put on, can I make it? And then you don't really spend much time, at least I didn't, thinking about making it. And it's like, oh, I'm here now, and I have actually have a job to do that's pretty difficult. And so, um, so that was a kind of an interesting realization. But I think the main thing um, with respect to the training is, um, and the selection phase in particular, is that um, you truly are um, largely limited by your mindset. And there was a lot of guys, I mean, we started RIP with, you know, well over 200 um, in the formation. And by the time it was done, there was, you know, I think less than 60. And the guys standing in the formation weren't the biggest, they weren't the strongest, they weren't necessarily the fastest. Uh, there were guys who um, I would have, you know, from day one, I would have thought, well, yeah, that guy's going to make it. And they didn't. And the reason they didn't um, is because they had chosen in their mind how much they were willing to put up with. And that's the whole point, I think, or one of the points of that, those sorts of environments is to get you to a place to where you set your expectations and your limitations aside. And instead of saying, well, I can do it as long as it's under these conditions, you have to approach it from the inverse and say, I will do whatever comes my way. If it means I don't sleep for the next three days, then that's what happens. Um, if it means that, you know, I have to do a 12 mile walk march after having ran six miles after having done whatever, then I, I just have to do that. And so you have to get to a place of almost just sort of dying to your own limitations, um, which is necessary. But then the sad irony is in that that sets um, that group of individuals, it can set that group of individuals up for failure, because then um, on the other side of serving in the unit, on the other side of war, you've been conditioned to believe that your value is based on how strong you are as an individual and how much pain you can put up with, because that's what got you in the unit in the first place is basically putting up with a lot of pain. You don't have to be there. You can leave rip. You can leave buds whenever you want. No questions asked, but 
it's your willingness to endure pain that keeps you there. And on the other side of war, it's exactly the opposite, your willingness to invite others in the conversation and your willingness to ask for help when you need it that will keep you here on this earth. And that's, um, that's, a, um, that's a tragic reality with respect to the types of traits and characteristics that are selected for in those units. And then in some respects, how some aspects of those traits need to be unlearned on the other side of the service in those units um, because we need to find ways to actually, you know, function in community and not just how do I muscle through something hard. So um, that, those are some of the lessons that I learned throughout that process. Um, uh, and um, yeah, hope that, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I'm definitely going to want to follow up on how you talked about, you know, your worth and value <clears throat> to start off with was how much pain you can endure mm-hmm. and do outside of your own feelings and emotions and how much that process is. And then, you know, it's almost the exact opposite. So I'm going to, I'm going to have some follow-up questions here on that, but what was your job as an army ranger? What, what did you specifically do? So I was an 11 Bravo, which uh, is the, the, the MOS uh, for infantry. Most um, uh, ranger regiment is, is basically uh, an infantry unit. So it's staffed the same as an, a platoon would be staffed in the 82nd Airborne or the 101st Airborne. Um, and so you have mostly infantrymen. And then you have, you know, some artillerymen, you have some medics, you have some other supports. Uh, but most of the guys in the formation are 11 Bravos, which is what I was. And so then um, I was assigned to, um, uh, there's two, well, there's a few different types. But basically you have within, a, within a, an infantry platoon, you generally have three squads of what are called line units. Um, uh, in, in Ranger parlance, they were called the line dogs. And those were uh, basically riflemen and saw gunners. Um, and then you had one squad that was uh, called weapon squad. And th- that's where the three medium machine gun teams uh, were housed. So the, the M240 Bravo machine gun. Um, and uh, I was assigned to weapon squad. So I was an assistant gunner uh, on an M240 Bravo uh, machine gun uh, at Ranger Regiment. Okay. So forgive my ignorance, but what, what does that mean? an assistant gunner. It means that you get to carry more weight than anybody in the platoon. Uh, <laughs> in, um, it means that that's one of the things it means. So your job is to, um, um, if you're dismounted, if you're on foot, uh, the gunner, um, his primary weapon system is the M240 Bravo, which is about, it's a 27 pounds uh, belt fed machine gun. And, um, and so your job as the AG is to carry rounds for the gun uh, make sure the, the gun is fed, make sure that if the gunner's firing, that he's always got rounds linked up. And then, you know, my primary weapon is the AG was my M4 carbine. And my job was to make sure the gun was up and to spot targets for the gunner. And then to, uh, as a secondary, uh, priority, engage targets myself with my own, with my own rifle. And so that was essentially the job. And you, you carry, you end up carrying a lot of weight because, um, you're carrying, um, you know, I carried my carbine, I carried my pistol. Um, uh, in some cases, some um, training exercises, I would have to carry a tripod for the gun. And then I would have to carry my basic combat load of, of ammunition. Uh, then I would have to carry anywhere between 500 to 1,000 rounds um, of ammunition for the 240, um, which that could be anywhere between 50 and 100 pounds just in rounds for that gun. So 
uh, I mean, I did in training and even in combat on patrol, uh, my load that I carried was any was probably around 150 pounds of weight on my body. And so, um, so yeah, that wasn't fun. <laughs> oh, and I had, much, I had a much thicker neck at the time. Uh, and, and that I do now, but, um, but that's, that's kind of what it means. The, the AG is the, is making sure the gun is up and running. And then if we were on vehicles, which we were sometimes, and we were the day of the ambush, then, um, my, uh, my superior, the 240 gunner, he would cover down and he would man the 50 cal, um, in our vehicle. And then the 240 became my primary weapon. And that's, uh, that's the weapon that I was manning, um, you know, uh, that day back in 2004. Okay. And you and Pat were in the same, was it the same platoon or regiment? Same platoon. So the regiment, uh, the Ranger regiment um, has three battalions. Here's, here's your military speak. So there's one Ranger regiment called the 75th Ranger regiment. There's three battalions. Um, um, and those battalions have about uh, close to 600 guys each. And um, one of those battalions is at Fort Lewis, Washington which is where we served. And then, uh, yeah, we were in the same platoon, which is about 35 guys. Um, and he was in a line squad. I was in weapon squad. And then Pat's brother, Kevin and I uh, were both in the same squad. Okay. And so, so you knew Pat fairly well then during yeah. that time. Yeah, reasonably well. I mean, um, I knew Kevin better just cause I worked with most most everything at the very least, all of the training in regiment happens at the squad level. Um, so most days you're doing PT, you're doing training with your squad and then that builds to platoon and then even company sized exercises. So yeah, I mean, you know, Kevin and I, we were, um, you know, we did PT together every day and then, you know, I saw and, you know, chatted with Pat most days, um, because, you know, either before work or after work or, you know, doing during training, you know, um, it's a, uh, that's your, that's your family is your platoon. Yeah. So tell me about the day of April 22nd, 2004. What was the day like before heading out on the drive? What was the terrain like? What was the mission objective leading up to the ambush? What was the firefight like? What was going through your mind during all of this? Yeah. So April 22nd, 2004, uh, we were deployed to coast province, um, which is where at the time the uh, Haqqani terrorist network was believed to have been operating. They would, you know, come back and forth between um, tribal lands of Pakistan and into Afghanistan. And so we were deployed as part of what's called a spring surge. Um, as mountain passes clear off from the winter, then fighters are able to move um, back and forth more freely. And so uh, we were deployed to um, conduct raids and patrols to mitigate that. We'd been out um, in the field um, for, I guess, probably about um, almost three weeks at that time. And um, we had been um, slowed down because one of our vehicles um, had mechanical issues and they couldn't get parts flown out. And that had um, sort of slowly begun to um, take more of a priority was dealing with a broken down vehicle, which sounds, you know, dumb when it's a bunch of army rangers, but you know, even army rangers have to do maintenance and, you know, make sure their equipment's working. And so, um, we had been trying to get that vehicle, uh, dealt with, um, and then ultimately were towing it behind one of our other vehicles through terrain that, um, there, there are, are no roads. The, the roads, so to speak, are just washed out riverbeds in between mountains. And so, um, 
um, it's very harsh. Um, communication is difficult. If you're on the other side of a canyon wall, you couldn't communicate because um, of the types of radios that we had. And um, so we were trying to tow that thing out and get it back to the FOB. And, um, and at the same time, there were other objectives that our chain of command wanted us to hit, other villages that needed to be cleared um, according to their intelligence. And so what had happened um, by April 22nd, 2004, it was, uh, we were stuck because the vehicle itself was just being destroyed trying to tow it through this terrain. Uh, tow, tow bars were break, breaking, tow straps wouldn't work. And so our, our PL was essentially trying to get permission from uh, the FOB to either get the vehicle sling loaded out, get a, a helicopter in to take it, uh, which for whatever reason wasn't possible, um, or take out the sensitive equipment from it and destroy it because we didn't need it. Um, I mean, not that we we thought lightly of equipment that the taxpayers had provided, but um, it was clear that just the process of dragging it back to the FOB was going to make the vehicle worthless. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, you would at best be able to cannibalize some parts from it, but effectively you would destroy the vehicle in an attempt to try and save the vehicle. And so um, we spent the better part of April 22nd, 2004 with that conversation playing out and it ultimately being, um, and then being told that we needed to do two things. We needed to get the vehicle back to the FOB um, and we needed to clear an objective that night. Um, and so um, against the protest of our platoon leader, um, the platoon leader was ordered to split the platoon um, and a half the platoon, uh, one known as Serial One, uh, which was the Serial Pat was in, was given the objective of clearing this village um, that was, you know, um, a few miles down the road. And the other half of the platoon, the, pl the Serial that I was in, Serial Two, was given the objective of escorting uh, this broken down Humvee back to the FOB. And we had hired a local truck driver um, to tow the vehicle. Um, and so that day was, it was a bizarre day because um, we were used to having the initiative. We were used to, if you're doing a raid, you do a raid at night. That's the biggest advantage the American forces have is being able to fight at night um, with the technology that we have. And we were sitting there all day for, you know, the entire country to watch us while this conversation took place around this vehicle and then ultimately we were told against the protest of our platoon leader to split platoon which creates command and control issues makes it really difficult to coordinate uh, actions between the elements obviously each element is smaller so each element is more vulnerable um, uh, but he was essentially given an ultimatum that that he had no choice and so um, he gave that order and then at dusk which is one of the worst times to move because it's not dark enough to have the advantage of night vision but it's not light enough i mean we all know you know how dangerous it is driving at that twilight hour um, in terms of your ability to just see well um, and so serial one left um, uh, down um, canyon roads to try and get to the village and then uh, we left with this truck leading out our, our column uh, and then our vehicle right behind it. Uh, and I was, I was manning a 240 Bravo machine gun on that vehicle. And then um, we, yeah, we initiated movement. Uh, we had been joking about basically how jacked up the whole thing was. Um, everybody knew that. That was, uh, uh, that was um, a, a huge frustration in terms of the disconnect between orders that were being given in the FOB versus um, uh, the reality that we all saw on the ground. And so 
um, we were supposed to go one direction. Um, the truck driver indicated that we should go another direction for whatever reason we took his advice and unbeknownst to us, we wound up going directly behind, albeit about 20 minutes behind, um, serial one down the same road. And we didn't know that I didn't know that. And so, um, uh, you're driving down a Canyon that literally at points in the Canyon, um, it wasn't even clear that our vehicle would fit. That's how narrow it was. It was just sheer rock walls. And, uh, you know, you're just kind of crossing your fingers, hoping nothing happens because um, if it were us on the other side of it, um, you could easily kill anybody who came through that terrain. Um, and, and it was a very vulnerable place to be that we had never been before. So you're at the bottom of a canyon, canyon yeah. and you literally could be surrounded by the enemy shooting down like shooting fish in a barrel. It wouldn't even, yeah, it wouldn't even be that hard. I mean, you just, you just, you know, drop a handful of, you know, grenades or what have you. And I mean, it would be, yeah, it, it would be incredibly easy to do a lot of damage. And so the canyon began to open up, um, became less narrow. And then um, uh, what I believe was either a mortar or an IED, there's people have different opinions, but basically an explosion um, started off what was an ambush explosion on the cliff. Um, and then we began taking small arms fire. Um, you could see muzzle flashes along the hillside. Um, and there was other explosions behind us. And so at that point, um, and then the truck drivers, we were stuck. We couldn't maneuver around the truck because the canyon was so narrow. And the truck drivers left. They, they jumped out of the truck, and we were basically stuck. And so, so at that moment. Behind the truck? Yeah. So at wow. that moment, I, I was convinced that we wouldn't survive um, because – the all of the it was just too easy and too perfect a scenario to just completely obliterate us um how could how could we not and so um eventually um you know you have muzzle flashes that you can engage um and so we started firing back um eventually at gunpoint our squad leaders you know got um drivers back in the vehicle and got us moving. Fortunately, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because they were terrible shots or they weren't very well motivated, but we never took, our vehicle never took uh, what would be considered effective fire. Um, there weren't rounds kicking up around us. Um, so if they were, if they were trying to kill us, they were doing a lousy job, uh, but they were shooting at us none the same, all, all the same. So uh, there was just a period of sporadic fire as we engaged muzzle flashes and tried to suppress anyone who might have an RPG or suppress anybody who might want to take a shot and move our way through the Canyon. And then as we came to kind of the end of the Canyon and it opened up even more, um, there were more muzzle flashes coming from the right um, and a silhouette of someone who was firing uh, our squad leader on the vehicle um, uh, shot and killed him, uh, shot, shot him six times uh, and killed him, uh, believing him to be the enemy. And then we keyed off of our squad leader's fire. The, 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 the slogan uh, in Ranger Regiment, maybe it's uh, elsewhere, but for, for us, the slogan was, when all else fails, you go where your team leader goes, you do what your team leader does, and you shoot where your team leader shoots. And so having a, a senior, it doesn't relieve you of responsibility as um, a, someone manning a weapon system to identify your target. Just because a squad leader's firing there doesn't mean you blindly fire there. Um, but it does mean that um, effectively, if, if if staff sergeant and the Rangers is saying this is an enemy position, and you have uh, a powerful weapon system to engage that position, 
um, you better have some pretty strong evidence to the contrary to not fire there. And so, um, quick question uh, for you. Yeah. So, So you're being fired on from many, many different positions. Yeah. And then you see muzzle flashes, uh, which you believe to be another enemy position. Yeah. How, how could you even identify whether that was friendly or foe? Uh, you, you, it, you couldn't, um, he was firing. So the individual that our squad leader killed was an Afghan military soldier who was fighting along with us. And he was firing over our heads at an enemy position on the other side. Um, that was behind me on the vehicle. So, um, so yeah, so it it's very like shooting at you. Yeah. And so it's very, it's very difficult. Um, again, the, the whole situation, the, the best way to deal with that situation is to not be in that situation in the first place. Right. Because there's, there's not a lot of really good options. Um, it's very clear in hindsight. Um, there's no question that our squad leader misidentified that that was a friendly. Um, and adjacent to that Afghan soldier was uh, Pat and uh, another uh, a platoon mate named Brian. And um, so we fired in that position um, and uh, believing that to be an enemy position. And then that effectively concluded the ambush. And then uh, we found out, uh, we, you know, dismounted the vehicles. It was dark by that point, uh, began to pull security. And then we knew that night that we had sustained four casualties, um, two dead and two wounded. Uh, two, two that were wounded was our platoon le- uh, leader, um, uh, a lieutenant, and the radio operator. They were both wounded. And then um, the Afghan soldier was killed and Pat was killed. And so we knew that that night. We didn't know until the following night that it was those casualties were as a result of friendly fire. Um, and that's, we learned that um, as kind of word was circulating amongst the platoon um, that um, uh, there were 50 cal rounds in the rock behind where Pat was killed. And well, there's only one 50 cal in our platoon and that was on our vehicle. And so that's, that was the first inclination, the first indication that, uh, when you realize, because we had no idea where they were, they were ahead of us. Pat Cyril was ahead of us in that canyon. They see the canyon explode behind them. And so what are they going to do? They're not just going to keep driving to their objective. Um, they dismount from their vehicles and began to maneuver along the ridgeline to see if they can you know, engage the enemy as well, which is exactly what they should do. Um, but having had no communication uh, uh, between the elements, um, there was no ability for the platoon sergeant or platoon leader to coordinate those efforts, and we didn't know uh, we didn't know what we didn't know in terms of uh, where they were. So it, it was very much a um, it, it was just a perfect storm of events that made that sort of outcome um, just tragically more likely, and right. that's what happened. So I was watching an interview where Brian, uh, who was next to Pat, said that. Pat popped a, a smoke grenade, a red smoke yeah. grenade. Did that happen or did that happen too late after the fact? I don't know. It might have. I mean, the, the, the challenge with all of that is um, two things. One, there's, you know, multiple explosions going off, you know, throughout the canyon. And um, if there was smoke um, uh, that was of that sort, I didn't see it. Um, and so, um, Brian may be absolutely right, but, um, I don't remember that. And the challenge as well is when you're trying to, which I know is really challenging for people trying to understand it is the, um, the only perspectives that you have to rely on are people who are in the middle of a life and death situation. Right. So, um, 
to to say that my perspective on the ambush is the end all be all perspective is is um, dishonest because it's not because I was operating in a state of hyper vigilance, hyper awareness, compressed timelines. Um, you know how you experience that is not objective. How Brian experienced that is not objective. And so um, it's, um, that's the challenge of trying to know who did what, when, is um, we were all kind of trying to do the best we could to survive. And, um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, the big, the big underlying issue was we didn't know who was where. And, um, and so, so yeah, that, that may very well be true, but I, I don't remember seeing that, unfortunately. So it was approximately 24, 48 hours when you got the news that it was friendly fire, um, that killed the Afghan soldier and, and Pat. And then you find out what was it from the 50 cal itself or was it other, other rounds that hit Pat? Yeah, the 50 cal didn't hit Pat because um, um, the damage that a 50 cal round would do would be um, brutally evident. Um, and so um, it, it was, I mean, I didn't know the nature of his wounds and, and I didn't know the details of that. But then, um, so at first it was, the, the, the assumption was that um, uh, the 50 cal gunner hit him. But uh, myself, the saw gunner um, uh, as well, we both knew that we fired in a similar place. So um, it's not to take on a responsibility that wasn't ours, but it was just the, well, we fired there too. So, um, um, and it seemed more likely that one of us hit him because the size of our rounds were smaller and were more consistent with the damage that was done to him. Mm -hmm. And so, and then I knew for sure because of the, the tips that were on my tracer rounds, uh, I knew that my rounds hit um, Jade, who is the radio operator. And, um, you know, uh, my rounds ricochets from my rounds, blew his knee out. And if he wouldn't have been wearing his body armor, he would have been killed um, from me. So that, I mean, I know that conclusively. Um, but yeah, over time, it, it, it slowly, you're in, a, you're in kind of a state of shock and disbelief. And it's, it's um, slowly the tumblers kind of start falling in and you start realizing, oh, like this is probably what happened based on who was where, which again, we didn't even know that until we were debriefing um, the, the incident. Right. When you found out what happened and that it was most likely uh, you and the guys next to you, what was that feeling like? Anger. I felt very angry because it felt incredibly unfair to have been put in that position in the first place. And then it felt incredibly unfair to um, then have to try and sort out how to live with that. So um, it was not a, um, that's not the sort of scenario that, you know, we, we like to talk about, even though it happens and it's understandable. We don't like to talk about it. It's, it's ugly and it's messy. Um, but um, you're not, you don't have a container for it. You know, you sort of have a container for I might get hurt or I might get killed. But even as a as a young kid, you don't even know what that means. You know, you think you do, but you don't. Right. And um, you definitely don't have a container for what happens if I do something with the best of intentions uh, that has the worst possible outcome and I'm still alive. What do I do with that? And so, I mean, I was in shock for a while, but then uh, over time, it just that metastasized into just a kind of a rage. Um, and I was I was very 
very angry at my chain of command. Um, I was very angry at the regiment, um, became more angry with the regiment um, as you know, they deceived the family and just made the whole situation worse for everybody. Um, and that was happening. Um, that was happening in the States unbeknownst to us. Um, and then uh, angry at God because um, I didn't understand why he had allowed that and then why he had allowed me to live with that. Hmm. I didn't know that uh, they were trying to deceive what had happened. Yeah. So what happened was um, there was a, a full blown, um, a full blown memorial service on ESPN for Pat um, and the uh, silver star citation uh, with a lie was put in the hands of a former Navy SEAL that Pat and Kevin had met in Iraq on a previous deployment and had, they had become friends and they asked him to read this citation that was a complete and utter fiction. And somebody within the chain of command wrote it. Um, when Brian O'Neill, who was with Pat, uh, was asked to sign that citation as a witness, he refused. He said, that's not what happened. Uh, and then Brian O'Neill became blackballed at the regiment because the regiment at the time, and I can't say the regiment as a whole, um, because leadership cultures change. But I can tell you that our company uh, within 2nd Battalion at that time um, had a very unhealthy leadership culture in which um, you were, it was, it was mafia-esque where um, we protect the family and we toe the line. And if that means lying to protect the family, then that's what we do. And um, the chain of command expected, um, I think expected to be able to control that narrative. Um, and they couldn't. Um, so we came back, you know, uh, we went back out on more, more raids uh, after the incident. And then we redeployed home and we came back and then began discovering that the family thought he was killed in a, you know, hail of enemy gunfire, you know, charging, charging enemy positions. And then people in our platoon started talking and saying, that's not what happened. <laughs> and so that's when the family basically said, um, they, they became pretty unglued and for all the good reasons and basically demanded an explanation. And then that's when, um, the regiment did a 180 and said, yeah, actually they were killed by friendly fire. And then um, that's when myself and three others to include the platoon leader were all released from the regiment um, for uh, basically what they described as a lack of weapons discipline. And so um, it really we were, wasn't because you were put in a situation that you couldn't control. Yeah. You shouldn't have been in that position to begin with. Right. So, um, so it was, uh, and, and at the same time, which I, I, I agree with that. And at the same time, it's hard to argue with the result yeah. of the action. So then you're kind of put in this position of how do you square up what you just said in terms of all of the mitigating factors that I think most people would agree create. And ultimately the army's criminal investigative division agreed that there was no lack of what there was. We followed the ROE. That's, that's ultimately what the Army came to the conclusion after four investigations was that uh, the shooters believed that they were under threat of enemy fire and they have a right to defend themselves. Um, you know, end of sentence, end of story. And that I think is true. But at the same time, what do you do with the collateral damage that's very real? That's not just a legal principle, you know, like Pat being shot in the head is not just legal theory that you can... Um, that you can absolve yourself from, um, you know, Jade walking with a cane because you fired. That's not something that you can just shrug your shoulders and say, well, I meant well, sorry about that. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's the, that's the challenge, the very real kind of uh, moral existential challenge is how, how do you reconcile those, those truths? Um, I think they're truths. And, um, and so, yeah, then the army did a 180, then the family demanded more investigations. And then it wasn't until, um, the army's criminal investigative division, um, went back to Afghanistan and recreated the ambush in those conditions, uh, because the, the family wanted to know what, what else, what else are you covering up? Are you just covering up the fact that this is embarrassing? Because it is to have army rangers accidentally kill other army rangers. That's objectively embarrassing. That's not supposed to happen. Um, are you just covering up that or are you covering up something else? And so, as we all know, once somebody lies to you, even if they immediately begin telling the truth after that, trust mm -hmm. has been destroyed. And, and that's what happened to the family. So then, um, and even, you know, Pat's brother, which is heartbreaking to, to hear that, um, Pat's youngest brother, Richard, Pat and Kevin's, you know, he described um, being told of fratricide as losing him all over again, because they'd been told one story of how he died. But then they get told that, that, no, actually, we were lying to you. This is actually how it happened. You can trust us on that. And so you just put the family through a whole nother roller coaster of emotions. And the military has done that many times. Um, um, and that's not, that's not a, um, an angry statement against the military. I'm pro-military. Um, that's a cautionary word to leaders who think that they have the power to cover up the truth. Right. You don't. Um, and the longer you run from it, the more it will eat you alive. And that's what happened is um, people who were scared, who had rank on their collar, um, operated with hubris. And they believed that they could make reality what they wanted it to be and that everybody else would fall in line. And they didn't. And the truth came out. And as it always does, it made a bad situation even worse. <laughs> as bad as it was, um, you just tell the truth and you swallow that hard pill and then you have a chance of getting beyond it. But once you've told that lie, it just becomes really difficult. And so that, that compounded. So, I mean, that, that reality, the, the what if reality of, uh, I didn't know until the CID investigation was complete in 2007, uh, almost three years after the incident. Um, I didn't know if uh, I might be going to jail uh, because CID ultimately was investigating whether or not we should be held responsible for negligent homicide. And so, um, so that was my reality for the duration of my service was what happened there, but then effectively waiting for this uh, investigative process to hopefully find some conclusion, which, which it ultimately did in 2007. So what, what was that fear like living with the potential that you could go to jail? Was there any repercussions for you, you know, or any disciplinary actions trying to I don't want to say throw you under the bus because I mean, there was yeah. your involvement, but, but what was that like? Because obviously that took a toll on you mentally and emotionally. Uh, yeah. I mean, it made it worse because then you, you it's sort of like, it's sort of like this whole thing, like where there's smoke, there's fire um, uh, where it's just like, well, I don't think I committed negligent homicide. Like, and, and the people that I worked for afterwards, there was no door in the army that was close to me. Um, I had tremendous support from my chain of command when I left regiment to, hey, you want to be an officer? You want to go SF? What do you want to do? Um, you, got, you got treated poorly by, by the regiment, and, and what can we do to help you? And so um, I had a lot of support, uh, which I'm so grateful for. 
And at the same time, it's sort of like, well, there wouldn't be this many resources being thrown at investigating something if, if we hadn't done something wrong. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. a sort of perverse, like, well, this must be evidence. The, this must be proportional evidence of how bad the thing it is that we did. And, um, and so then it just makes it much easier to internalize that guilt and internalize that shame. Um, when, you know, in, in reality, most of the, ultimately what most of CID focused on, I mean, are the shooters and their actions, I, I think comprised all of one paragraph in their, you know, hundred plus page report. Um, what mostly they're, because fratricide happens and I, many officers tell me that it's just like, it's tragic and it's shitty and, um, don't let this like you were doing your best um but um, most so most of their 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 focus was on the chain of command how that how that situation even was created in the first place um because that's true in any in any context it's really easy to focus on the moment when think when the wheels fall off in in life it's really easy to focus on the moment that all of a sudden my, my wife and I are having an argument in the car or all of a sudden, you know, this thing is happening. But reality, oftentimes you can trace the seeds of that event that were sown far in advance of that event. And you can say, oh yeah, like this, this, this compounded by that, then you have this that bears fruit. Right. And so like not um, getting rid of the vehicle when they should have. Right. And, and moving at, you know, uh, splitting a platoon and moving at dusk and all of these things that are just, they're just risk factors that um, um, uh, individually or together, they don't guarantee that a tragedy will happen, but they sure increase the likelihood. Um, and so, uh, and unfortunately the, the likelihood, you know, was realized. And, and in reality, we're lucky that more people didn't die on that hillside. Right. Um, um, and so, so yeah, it was a, um, my service basically just became, uh, I mean, I, I went and I worked for a couple different general officers who were great, uh, wonderful guys. I, I, I finished my master's and basically I was just biding my time to, to kiss the army goodbye. That was really what I was waiting for was I made my four-year commitment. I'm going to do that and um, I am getting out of here. Um, I've had it. When I started this podcast, it was important for me to lead by example that I wouldn't hide behind a fake mask acting like I've arrived and speaking from the mountaintop. My whole purpose was to be vulnerable about where I was, my failures, my struggles, and my successes so that I could be a bridge, that I could be a gap in this process of showing people how to change in the areas of faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, and fun because that's exactly where I'm at and what I'm doing. And I had a coach years ago and he was the first coach I've ever had. And he did it for a very affordable rate because I couldn't afford anything more than what he offered me. But he told me this, Evan, someday you're gonna get in a spot where you're gonna be able to give back to others. And I want you to remember what I'm doing for you here and now, that it's made affordable so that you can actually go through it. He goes, I believe in you and I trust that you'll do this. And so because of that, it resonated within me that at a certain point, when I felt I've had enough hard knocks that I had something to offer other people, I would start a coaching program. And this is that. I am now starting a coaching program and I'm gonna make it affordable because by the graces of someone else that helped me out when I was first starting my journey, I wanted to do the same for other people. So I'm gonna offer a free 15 minute coaching phone call to anyone that wants it. 
you can go to the website, thewholepersonpodcast.com and sign up for that free coaching phone call. And if you're looking to have a longer extended coaching relationship outside of that first 15 minute phone call, I have the prices right up front. I'm open about it. And I'd be more than happy to see if we'd work well with one another and can help you reach and achieve the goals that you have in life. Guys, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the show. Right. Well, because when you signed up, there was this romantic idea of what going through this process would make you, you know, a man, macho. And the military does a great job of enticing young men that exemplifies, hey, this is what it looks like to be a man. Come serve your country. Go through hardship. But it's really a big lie. And go ahead. Yeah, in some respects. I mean, I think there are elements like, um, I think there are definitely elements where um, you are forced to grow up in a hurry. I mean, I was, which is bizarre to think about. I was considered one of the old guys in the platoon because I was 22 and I had been to college. And Pat and Kevin were practically grandfathers who (laughs) 25 and which is, I mean, you look back now, it's just like, we were all, you know, still kind of kids in a way, but, um, but there, there is an element of, I mean, I think one of the beautiful aspects of the military is it, it forces you to understand that your worth individually, um, is directly proportional to the health of the unit that you're in. Um, and that's a really good visceral lesson to learn in a society, uh, Western society, America in the year 2020, that is so hyper individualistic. We are so about, um, in the church, outside of the church, we are so about my spiritual development and my spiritual journey and my business and what am I accomplishing and what does God have for me and what is my purpose? And at a certain point, you just need to shut up and realize that you live and all of us live within the context of community. And in the context of the Christian faith, Jesus isn't coming back for Evan. He's not coming back for Stephen. He's coming back for his church of which we're a part. And so we would do well. And it's hard for us as Americans. It's hard for me because we've been grown, we've grown up in this pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything. Go live the American dream mantra. It is ingrained in ourselves (laughs) and we don't even know it. Um, and so um, that's one of the things about military culture that can be really positive is this, you, you see that you're basically forced to work to, with people. There's guys in my squad that I didn't like. I thought they were arrogant or I thought they were annoying, but you know what? Um, I loved them and we had to figure out how to work together. And that's a really good lesson. Um, to your point, however, I do think that we have to be really careful about what expectations that we set around military service. And there's a lot of particularly young men um, who I believe go to the military because of father wounds. They didn't have a dad and they never felt that um, they were enough. And they felt that, yeah, if I could have this patch on my uniform or if I could do this, then I would know. And the reality is you won't. Um, if, If you're incomplete on the inside, there's not enough ribbons, there's not enough money, there's not enough achievement that will, that will fill that, um, even if that achievement's really good, you know, it's not to knock the achievement, but um, I, think, I think we do have to be careful about that. And, you know, um, young men, if you're listening, you know, I would tell you, I wouldn't say don't join the military. I would just say, 
be really careful about what expectations that you're putting onto the military to solve for you because um, it's a job and you're going to work with people that are a pain in the ass and you're going to work with maybe some good people. You're going to have leaders who disappoint you. You're going to have leaders who let you down. Hopefully you'll have leaders that do the right thing, but you cannot be placing your identity on success in that environment any more than you can be placing your identity on whether or not you get the COO job or you placing your identity on whether or not you get into that school. Um, you have to find a way to separate the value of who you are as a person from the things that you've done, good or bad. And so there's a, a lot of lessons there to unpack. And, and I, you're, you're right, there, there, there is a danger. Um, the military, generally military recruiters, um, aren't having that conversation with somebody who's 18 thinking about the military. Right. And, and maybe they should join, um, but you just have to be real careful about what your expectations are. So Pat Tillman is seen as a national hero, and with every hero, there needs to be a villain. Yeah. Through this process, did you feel like you were villainized or um, put out to pasture wet and beaten? Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it points, um, particularly. Um, yeah, it points. I think. I think for sure. I mean, it's easy to. Um, yeah, I, I think. I think the short answer is yes. And then at the same time, I think the oversight um, and deceptions of our um, chain of command, um, even in some respects, overshadowed that. Um, but yeah, you're, at the very least. You, you, it slowly became like less of a vilification. And at the very least, you're just this person, you're this character in a story that nobody knows what to do anything with, including yourself, you know, like, right. Well, what, what am I exactly? Like I'm not important enough to be the villain, um, to believe that you are to, to carry around the weight that I am solely responsible for what happened is actually just another expression of pride. Um, it's just another expression that you are so important and you are so powerful that you could cause all this situation by yourself. That's not true. Um, I didn't cause this situation by myself. Um, I was, you know, literally the low man on the totem pole, uh, you know, pulling a trigger. Um, lots of other people who had way more authority than I did had to make decisions. Um, but at the same time, I carry responsibility for my decision to fire. And so um, it mainly just became... Uh, probably less of a vilification and just more of a confusion of like, I don't even know what to do with that. Like, I don't know. There's not a neat place for that. There's not a Stephen served honorably and he died in, in combat. Uh, we know what to do with that. That's tragic. Or Stephen was wounded in action or what, you know what I mean? Like right. we know what to do with that, but like, what do you do with this other than kind of just try and pretend like it didn't happen. So right. that, that was, I think probably where I landed. Okay. Because ultimately, when you signed up, you were wanting to be the hero. And, sure. and throughout the process of the story, you realized not only did you not matter much, but then your part of this overall story really, really sucked. And yeah. then it caused ramifications of your life afterwards. You know, there's um, a statistic that I'm, you're aware of, and it's that 22 veterans commit suicide every single day because of the emotional uh, traumas and mental health issues that go along with serving. And so I was looking at some of the statistics, which is 
per per 100,000, there are 30 veterans that kill themselves daily. And civilian-wise, per 100,000, there's 14 that right. commit suicide. Right. And veterans are exponentially higher than that. That's double. Right. And so going through the process of mental health issues, what, what was that like for you, the aftermath of your service? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult. Um, I came back and, you know, as the shock wore off, then, you know, I, I began to exhibit, you know, pretty classic post-traumatic stress disorder, hypervigilance nightmares. Um, basically I, um, I, I couldn't really sleep if I wasn't using alcohol. And so, um, I became kind of a high performance, you know, abuser of alcohol, um, which again, like culturally within that culture is kind of easy to hide because um it's it's a culture that embraces strong drink <laughs> so um the fact that you know you have a few beers um uh, or you know five or six yeah that's what you do um so it's easy to it's easy to be medicating yourself without even realizing you're medicating yourself uh but that's what i did and so um i didn't want um I didn't want a diagnosis um, because I felt like um, that was really just too scary. Um, I wanted to pretend that I could do it on my own and just figure it out on my own. And, and then there was a part of me that didn't feel like I deserved care in the first place because um, I was a person who did something bad that hurt other people. So whatever it is that I am experiencing that's negative, I actually deserve that. Um, and so I bought into that lie as well. Um, and basically focused on, um, I, I walked away from my relationship with the Lord. I basically, I would describe my spiritual journey as I went into the army as the older son in the story of the two sons, where I believed that I had a seat at the father's table because I was actually a pretty good kid. I worked hard. And the dad was lucky to have me around. Um, dad was lucky to, to have somebody as good as me, um, you know, working on the ranch. And then as um, things turned out in a way that I didn't approve of, I became the younger son. And I said, forget it. Cut me a check. If this is the way that you run your kingdom, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I walked away. And not surprisingly, uh, things didn't improve. Um, as I doubled down on my self-reliance, I doubled down on my individuality and, um, um, and, and doubled down on this idea that I could work myself and achieve myself out of the guilt and shame that I carried with me from April 22nd of 2004. And so, um, you know, initially it was my problems, the army. As soon as I'm out of the army and as soon as the investigations are completed, then everything will be better. Well, guess what? Investigations are completed. You're out of the army and things aren't better uh, because the problem is, is you. You're carrying it around inside of you. It's not your external environment. And so I got out of the army. I got a great job as a wealth manager with a big national firm uh, uh, making great money. Um, and it just as I achieved more, I became more hopeless and helpless because then I began to realize that the things that I was putting my hope in couldn't deliver. And so the most hopeless person in the world isn't the person who's at the bottom. That's actually a hopeful person is truly at the bottom. The most hopeless person at the world in the world is the person who has achieved everything that they've dreamed of. And it still doesn't cut it because then what, what do you have? You have nothing. What, what's left? 
you've got the house, you've got the car, you've got the suits, you've got the vacation, and it's still not enough, then you are at the end of your rope, hopefully. Um, and so um, I had to go through a process really of a 12 year process of getting to the end of myself and just being willing to a even name that I had a problem because, uh, and not the problem, not necessarily the alcohol abuse, but the problem being uh, post-traumatic stress and survivor's guilt. Um, because I was afraid that if I named the problem, um, what if I couldn't come up with a solution? Mm -hmm. So it was easier to pretend like the problem didn't exist, uh, basically because I was, I was just too scared. And so, um, it took me a lot of years to get to a place to where I was willing to submit to the creator, um, that I, I was willing to submit to his plans and purposes and not mine. Um, and that I was willing to, um, you know, invite others into the conversation. Um, and it was a result of that, uh, humility and a result of, of that community, um, that I was healed. And I don't, I don't suffer from post-traumatic stress. I, I don't feel, I feel remorse. I miss Pat. Um, I miss the fact that he was a brilliant guy and I would love to pick up the phone and be able to have a conversation with him. I miss him as a, as a human, as a person. And, and I, I regret the pain that, um, that people like Brian and people like Jade, the radio operator and, and our platoon leader, the pain that everyone experienced. Um, I, I regret that. And at the same time, I don't feel guilty for it. Um, um, because I understand, um, I understand and I can see more clearly. Um, but that also doesn't absolve myself of responsibility. It's, it's kind of a both and reality where I have responsibility. I, I needed to say, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I, I needed to apologize to the Tillman family, which I did. Um, and not because I was this horrible villain, but because I made a mistake. And the fact that my intention was, was not to hurt friendlies doesn't change the mistake. And I think sometimes our pride will, will cause us to hide behind our intentions. Mm -hmm. How many arguments with my wife have devolved very quickly <laughs> because instead of honoring what she's feeling about what I said or did, I go into a defensive mode and say, that's not what I meant. You're just taking it out of context, right? If you would listen to me, then I make it about me. Instead of just stopping and saying, hey, I didn't intend that, but I am sorry you felt that because I don't want you to feel that way, right? right. We would have <laughs> so much of an easier time in life if we can just short circuit that, that defensiveness and pride and be able to live in, in what is often a both and reality. Um, the reality of, I didn't mean to hurt you, but I did. And I'm sorry. Those things can all be true at the same time. And, and I had to get to that place to where I could, I could reconcile that. And I had to get to the place. Really, I just had to, talking about the guy who you know, is able to put up with a lot of pain, um, I just had a higher pain tolerance. And my life had to just be really bad for a long time before I was willing to say, you know what? Maybe this isn't working very well. <laughs> Maybe I need to acknowledge the fact that I am not my own creator, that I'm not in charge, and I need help. And that's the point at which um, you're actually on a path to healing. Uh, that's different for everybody. But, um, but for me, um, that's, that's what it took. What was the response of the Tillman's family to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke with, um, so in 20, 2016, was it? Um, I finally had the guts to, to reach out. Um, I reached out to uh, Mary, Pat's mom, um, via 
the producer of the ESPN piece, um, um, and they had done a lot of coverage. And so it was interesting that the producers of that piece uh, was a guy by the name of Willie Weinbaum, um, who um, is just a wonderful human being. He was sort of like Switzerland in this whole thing, because he was the person that everybody on all sides of the incident trusted. And so um, I reached out to him and I said, hey, um, uh, would you be willing to pass along an email to Mary? And he said, sure. And so I I emailed her uh, basically just saying, hey, you know, I hedged myself a lot saying, if you want to ignore this, if you don't feel like talking, that's totally fine. But I just wanted to reach out to you and and see if you'd be up for meeting. And um, that I clicked send on that email. And within 30 minutes, she was on the phone. Wow. And, um, yeah, it's the, um, it's the, uh, excuse me, it's the kindness and the, um, uh, the grace that she extended and she didn't have to. And she called me and she said, um, you know, I am, she said, I could tell by your email that maybe you were kind of hesitant to reach out. And she said, I just didn't want any more time to pass. And she said, I'm so glad you reached out. She said, I'm so sorry for all that you've been through. And um, so I was kind of in shock <laughs> sitting there um, ready to apologize when, when she was, you know, extending uh, that kindness to me. And so uh, we met uh, her and my wife, Brooke and, and Mary, we met. Uh, that summer and we had a wonderful time connecting and, and um, uh, she's um, uh, I don't speak to her all that often, but, but she's certainly become a friend. And, um, and so, so yeah, that, that's been the extent of my connection with the family and, um, and she doesn't speak for all of them necessarily. Um, you know, Kevin's, you know, passed along kind words through her, uh, which is great. Um, and so, I think with that, you know, the lesson there is uh, when you think, be careful about assuming that relational doors are closed. Um, maybe it will take time for those doors to reopen. Maybe it will be hard to reopen them. You know, maybe you'll have to stare some, some actions and some words in the face that you'd rather not. Um, but um, the, the, there is always, always, always hope for reconciliation. There's always hope for forgiveness. And particularly as followers of Jesus, if we're not hoping for that and praying for that, um, we need to repent. If there are people in our lives that we've written off and we've said, that person, they lied to me, they used me, they're no good to me. Maybe you shouldn't trust them. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't be in business with them, but it is your duty to love them. And Woe to any of us if we allow our hearts to become hardened towards reconciliation, um, because that's the, that's the gospel. And so that taught me a lot of lessons where if hope can be woven into that relationship, then um, I, I believe, and, and, and I don't know how you measure, you know, what's hard or what's the worst. I don't, I don't know. I, I would tell you there's a lot of people who have been through way worse than I have, but um, the hope is not my ability as Stephen to craft a good apology. The hope isn't one of semantics. Uh, the hope is, is the creator that loves us and whose heart is for reconciliation. 
And so for our own good, even if that reconciliation never happens this side of heaven, for the, for the goodness of our own heart and for the goodness of our own relationship with, with the Lord, um, we have to always hope for that. Right. We have to always pray for that and, um, and be submitted to what that might look like, which will, will probably be hard. And, and so that, that's what that journey was like, and that's what that um, connection was like, and that's a little bit of what, what that has taught me. I want to follow up on something that you pointed out earlier is that through this process at the beginning is that you felt like you deserved the pain. Yeah. And then also there was a part that you mentioned about kind of blaming others and then also like, well, not blaming others, but specifically once I get out of the military, then my life will be better right. and, and causing the blame on what your life should be like on the effectiveness of, of your situation when it's not, you know, peace right. is not circumstantial, true peace is right. in spite of circumstances. And, you know, for, for any of the soldiers that are listening or any of uh, the civilian world that is in pain and blaming themselves saying they deserve it and, and aren't wanting to go get help because they think they deserve it. What advice do you have for them? Stop. <laughs> um, that those two things are not mutually exclusive. You may be, you may be the villain in the story. And at the same time, you are, you're here and you're God's creation. And, um, and he loves you and he wants you to be well and he wants you to be whole. And so those two things, um, whether or not the extent to which you did wrong, um, has nothing to do with you, um, and it's not even, it's not even a question of deserving. We don't deserve anything. Um, you know, um, we're, we're clay in the hands of the potter. And if he wants to take the pot and throw it on the ground, he has the right to do that. Um, I don't have the right to use a voice that he gave me to curse him. That's, that's insane. And yet we do that all the time, right? We, we take the very life that we have that is a gift from him and we use that against him when we're not getting what we want. And so um, I think the, the first piece of that is just even recasting this idea of what any of us deserve is that once we realize that whatever good things that we have in our life to include just the ability to exchange oxygen is a gift. It's a gift. And it's a gift that we don't have to work for. It's a gift that we've been given and that our identity as a beloved created being is separate and distinct from the things that we do or have left undone. Um, and that's the difference between guilt and shame. When I feel bad about something I've done and I know I need to make it right, that's guilt. And that's not a bad thing if I do something with it. When I feel shame, it's when action has now transcended being. And when you go from, I did something wrong, that's guilt, to I am something wrong. That's shame. And that's a lie. And that's one of the enemy's favorite tactics is to keep us there. Because as long as we're believing that lie, we're separated from the love of the creator. And if we're separated from the love of the creator, we're separated from the source of our ability to love other people. Because right. it, we're hard to love. I'm hard to love. I'm a pain in the ass. And you are too in your own ways. And it takes grace from the Lord for other people to love us. And so, um, I mean, that's what I would say is that it all starts from there. And if you think that, um, 
if you, you're not going to be able to receive from other people help that they have for you if you can't receive love from the one who made you. And right. so that's where that starts. And then when those two things are distinct, it's, it's so much easier. It's still hard, but it's so much easier because then I can engage with the stupid things that I do or the dumb things or the hurtful things that I say. I can engage with those things without those things becoming part of who I am. Right. They'll have responsibility for them, but they're, they don't challenge who I am in, in my identity. You know, to kind of say what you've already just said, um, within Christianity, there's these two words, condemnation and conviction. Mm. And I think our society, or even as a person, have a hard time understanding the difference. Yeah. Because condemnation drives a wedge in between God and us and our guilt and shame. That's right. Because of the condemnation. And oftentimes we feel like we deserve that condemnation because of the sin or the things that we've done. But none of that leads us to repentance. None of that leads us to God. But conviction is exactly what you're talking about. The knowing that we messed up, the knowing that we need help, the knowing that we need love. And the conviction is the wooing of of God to bring us closer to him saying, Hey, in spite of all this, I love you and you can be healed. That's right. That's exactly right. How did the PTSD affect your, your other relationships, the marriage? And then how did God reconcile that? Yeah, not, not well. Um, I mean, cause what it does is that it causes you for me anyway, you feel like you have this leprosy that you don't want to infect other people with. You feel like you're just carrying around this darkness and so then you just isolate. And that's what I did. And I isolated for a lot of years. Um, so that, you know, had you know devastating impact on my relationship with my wife um, until the point that we were separated and divorced in 2009 and then, you know, uh, reunited um, a year later. Um, and, and that was the point at which I could actually name what was wrong with me um, or begin to name it. And um, yeah, it makes your world very small because, um, I hated group settings. It was stressful for me to be, you know, in a restaurant. Uh, it was stressful for me to be at a party. Um, it was stressful for me to have people over for dinner. So I basically just wanted to be alone, um, you know, by myself drinking. And, um, and that, that, that became, everything else just became work. Things that would otherwise be enjoyable became an effort um, because you're just carrying around this weight. Um, so that's, that's how it manifested. And, uh, you know, again, it was, you know, partly, you know, us separating and divorcing was really helpful because it kind of was a big wake up call to say, you know, the things that you're doing and the way that you're handling this isn't working. And, and here's some really clear evidence why. And so, um, so that was certainly a turning point. And then, um, you know, I had to kind of exhaust a lot of treatment modalities, um, which some of them were helpful. Some of them weren't to really get to the place, my, my cheat to get to the place where I could be healed. And the thing that I needed to be healed of wasn't post-traumatic stress. My ailment was manifesting itself as post-traumatic stress. Just like, you know, we're in the cold and flu season. Your problem, if you have a head cold, isn't that you have a runny nose. That's not your problem. Or that your sinuses are killing you. Those are manifestations of virus or bacteria that your body is fighting, right? And granted, you need some relief from those symptoms sometimes, but the symptoms are not the problem. So the problem for me that was manifesting itself as post-traumatic stress was pride. That's it. 
it was pride. And the Lord graciously used post-traumatic stress to destroy my heart in the best possible way. And were it not for that post-traumatic stress, I would not have been brought to my knees, been forced to be brought to my knees in the way that I was. And so um, that was, uh, it, it was at a place where I finally uh, was able to surrender that, that he brought healing. And it wasn't because he was some withholding father that just wanted to get something out of me. It was because he wanted to do something bigger in me. And he loved me enough to not let up. He loved right. me enough to not just say, you know what? we'll just go ahead and, and call it a day. We'll, we'll take away the post-traumatic stress um, without you having learned how to submit to me. That would have been evil. That would have been a, a horrible, uh, a, 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 a hatred even. Um, but he loves us enough to not relieve us of our symptoms um, until we're, we're willing to really address the issue. And, and so, um, you know, people can read more about the specifics of that in the book. But that, that really is, um, in essence, what, the, what I, had to, I had to go through. And, I, and I'm, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I wouldn't want to do it again. And at the same time, I can see and now experience um, the fruit that those dark hours um, have birthed in me. And um, I, I don't know what to say. I'm grateful for it. Um, but um, I understand it more than, than I certainly did when I was in the middle of it. Yeah, you wish you never had to go through it, but you like the person and what God did in you as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, so let's flip roles here. Okay. Let's pretend now that the person listening is the spouse or someone close of the person hurting that yeah. needs help. How do they handle the situation and how do they help the other person without being an antagonist? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> um, it's so hard. Um, I mean, I think the, the first off is just offering encouragement that how things are um, is not how they will always be. Um, and I mean, my wife would tell you that there was a lot, a lot of hopeless days and a lot of days where it's just like, this is never going to change. Um, our relationship is over. Our marriage is over. This, this, there's not, it's not even that it can't be resurrected. It's just, there's nothing to resurrect. It's, it's gone. Um, and so I think that the first, um, you know, the first encouragement is, is just that there is always hope. Um, I think in terms of how you engage with that, I mean, I, I think it's a lot of prayer. Um, I think um, you have to, to remind yourself that you're not the problem. I know that was something that my wife experienced a lot where as I was isolating, um, she began to feel that it was about her that um, it's that I didn't want her or I didn't want to be with her. Uh, when in reality, that wasn't the truth at all. I, I didn't know how. And I wanted to keep her from what I was experiencing. So I think, um, you know, the enemy will be quick to tell you that the reason that there's a problem is it's you. And that's not, that's, that's not true. Um, if, if you have someone who is dealing with post-traumatic stress from anything, you know, whether they were in the military or not, um, and they go to that inward place and they want to isolate, it's not you. Um, and, and, um, so there, there has to find, and I think the, I think the biggest, um, probably help can be you, you as somebody within the relationship lack the resources and tools to help the relationship. And so, um, you have to find ways to invite other people in the conversation. And that doesn't have to necessarily be dragging your spouse to counseling. 
right? Because that for some folks, particularly guys, that's a non-starter. Um, and uh, not, not, nothing against counseling, that's fine. But um, finding ways to invite other people of positive influence into your world. Maybe that's your husband's buddy and his wife that they serve with. And you have them over for dinner every so often. But finding ways to not isolate yourself as a couple and finding ways to relieve yourself of the burden that I have to solve this. I have to, I have to figure out how to get him to a counselor or I have to figure out how to get her to read this book or I have to figure this out. You'll drive yourself crazy um, doing that. Um, but you need help. And, um, and, uh, and it's not your fault. Uh, I think those, those are probably two, two things that I would, uh, I would offer. What were some of the lessons you learned through the process of learning how to forgive yourself? Yeah. I mean, you, you learn, um, you learn that in some respects you're, you, you are, and it's kind of a relief to learn this. You learn that, you know, you're valued and you're loved by your creator and, um, and he has plans and purposes for you. And that's true. And the coming of his kingdom doesn't rely on you. <laughs> his plans and purposes will be worked out in the meta story that he has, regardless of whether or not I submit. And that's a mystery. And I still don't understand, and I probably never will, why he chooses to use broken vessels that are sinful human beings to accomplish his will. But I've learned that I'm simultaneously valued above all creation, just as you are and just as your listeners are. And at the same time, I'm not that important. And that's really good. Like um, the world and his kingdom does not rest on me writing a book or not. The world and his kingdom doesn't rest on, um, you know, somebody uh, starting a business. And I think it's really, really easy. And the enemy will use that as well. It's really tempting to, from a good place of, I want to make a difference in the world. You know, how many times at ORU are we told that, you know, basically you are the answer to the world's problems, right? um, And there's a truth, there's there's something about that that's beautiful because ORU, um, picking on that a little bit, is a beautiful place. Like the mandate that was given to Oral to raise up um, students to hear the voice of the Lord and to go into dark places, that's powerful. That is powerful. But the only reason we have that power is because we recognize that we're, we're worthless. <laughs> we recognize that we're fallen and we recognize that the only power and authority we have comes by virtue of Jesus. That's it. And so once you realize that it's so much easier to, to forgive yourself, it's so much easier to forgive others um, because it's not this power dynamic of I'm better than you, or I've got, I'm, I'm more together than you are, or you've hurt me and you owe me. I'm nobody's judge. The Lord will work that out. My job is to love other people. And that sometimes includes saying things that they'd rather not hear. Um, that doesn't mean that we're just, you know, um, giggling and having a pillow fight all the time. Um, sometimes it's, it's having some harsh words, um, but uh, it's harsh words, hopefully in love. Um, and it's a quickness to, uh, the, the goal is always relationship. Um, it's not our agenda. It's not the work that we're doing isn't really about the work that we're doing. Um, I run a trust company. You're, you're, you're doing what you're doing, teaching, coaching, and mentoring. That's great. Those are not the ends unto themselves. Those are means to the end. And the end is loving God and loving people. It's an excuse to be in relationship with one another and hopefully love one another and, and help us grow closer to the Lord. 
that's the objective. And once you begin to internalize that, and you still forget it, I still forget that. I still wake up and find myself thinking that it's all up to me and it's all about me. And if you know I don't send the right email or make the right phone call or do the right thing, that the world's going to come crashing down. And that's just not true. And so um, you find just a tremendous amount of freedom. And, and that's what underlies the gospel is if, if somebody is preaching a gospel to you that is, as you said, replete with condemnation, and if somebody is preaching a gospel to you that is not freeing, um, and at the same time calling you back to the truth uh, and the rigidity of the law, um, if, if both of those things aren't in it, then it's not the gospel. And, 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 um, and so I, I just feel like I've been really lucky because the Lord just continues to be really gracious in how he helps my heart to grow. Um, and I haven't arrived. Um, I still fall back to old patterns and old habits and, and I have to, um, I have to be reminded in, in sometimes harsh terms that it's not about me and, and I get to play and that it's the Lord that's working out the story and, and, and I don't have to write it. So talking about your habits and routines, I, the next question I have written down is what habits and routines changed in your life from, you know, the process of self-medicating and essentially holding on to that pain to what your daily habits and routines look like as someone who's healed and, and forgiven yourself? Yeah. The big thing is that like, um, I, I'm, I'm much more aware and much more careful about when I'm going to something to try and fill something in my heart that I need to go to the Lord with. And so, and sometimes those things are pretty benign. Sometimes it's just, nah, I just want to, I want to medicate with video games or I want to medicate with just a glass of wine. I don't want to have three cocktails. Um, but the heart is the same. The heart is saying, I need this thing that's outside of myself, whether it's my quadruple latte or whether it's my bottle of wine or whether it's, you know, my, whatever it is, I need something TV. that's outside of TV. Um, I need to binge watch the next show, which that's fine. Maybe you do, but that's the, that's the challenge of the gospel in all things is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't really care what you do. He doesn't. He cares about what your heart is because if he has your heart, then he's going to have everything else that you choose to do, right? And so we get hung up on making sure that we manicure our life in such a way so that we're meeting some moral code. Well, I only have a glass or two of wine a night, you know, and I wake up and I'm fine. Well, why? It's, that's not the point. That's not the point of like, should you or should you not drink alcohol? The point is why? Where is your heart? And is that choice drawing you closer to the Lord or is it actually making you more and more self-sufficient? And if it's doing the latter, then it's a problem. And so I think for me, um, I'm more aware of that. Um, so, you know, I have a drink every now and then, um, but I'm really cautious and careful about why. Um, is there something that I'm running from that I should really just, I just need to go pray. <laughs> I need to go take a walk and pray and give that fear and give that hurt to the Lord and not give it to, you know, the bottle, um, and, uh, or work or whatever thing that we can bury ourselves in that, um, that are even, that can even be more, um, I guess, duplicitous because they, they wrap themselves up as something good. You know, uh, it's my ministry. Uh, and that's what I'm, that's my work. And, and it's like, well, you can hide, uh, the world's full of people who hide from the Lord doing the ministry. <laughs> and so we have to be real careful with that. So that, I think that's the main thing is just asking the question why and, and, you know, sleep is a big thing. Um, so much of my problems and, and the problems begin to multiply and metastasize, but 
Um, if you are not, whatever challenge you're going through in life, if you're not drinking enough water, getting some exercise and getting good sleep, it's going to be really, really difficult to solve those problems. And that sounds overly prescriptive and that sounds maybe super simple, but that's just the foundation of physical health. And so, um, you know, I'd encourage anybody to just start there and say, maybe you don't know how to solve your marriage, but if you're not sleeping well, and if you don't have good habits around that, it's going to be really difficult. Depression is going to be far more likely. Um, anxiety is going to be far more likely by just not having good sleep and hydration. And, and that was certainly part of my problem. When you wake up and you drink coffee all day and you drink alcohol all night, A, you don't sleep. And then, you know, B, you're, um, you're just not taking care of yourself. And the very real problems um, are just that much bigger. So um, that, th- those are some things that I've learned in that process. You know, I liked that you talked about essentially becoming self-aware situationally that has helped you in your process of healing and growth and why you're doing certain things. And situational awareness, self-awareness, I'm sure that's something that you were kind of ingrained in with the military. But for those of us that aren't in the military, how do we develop self-awareness or situational awareness? Community. You're, you're not going to do it on your own. You, you are the worst observer of yourself. You just are. And the, if you think you're a really good observer of yourself, it means you're a really terrible observer of yourself because you believe that you're a good observer of yourself and you're still believing the lie. You have to have community. And when we're in pain and when we're in darkness, I mean, I was like, a, we, we oftentimes push community away, which is exactly the thing that we need. And so that's part of the, the, the scariest thing in the world. I mean, uh, isn't, you know, jumping out of a helicopter in Afghanistan. The scariest thing in the world is actually being honest with your feelings with other people. That's, that's way worse. You know, um, and so you have to have other people in your life who can speak truth to you and they have to have the freedom to speak truth. And that doesn't just mean providing constructive compliments. It means actually saying, hey, Stephen, I'm observing this in you and uh, you maybe don't realize it, but I don't think this is going to lead you down a good road. Right. And so um, I think the, it, it, the self-awareness it equals community in my mind. It's really funny because... I think personally, I'm really good at being self-aware. <laughs> right. Yeah. And now, I think I am too. Like, but, but it's funny. It's our hearts are so insidious because we can be really good at reverse engineering. It's just, it's just, it's really, we can grow in that. I think, I think um, I, I would tell you that like I've grown and become, and, and, and I've become more self-aware, but I would tell you that um, the way that I have become individually more self-aware is because of other people's observances of me. <laughs> It's right. because of my wife saying, Stephen, you know, and kicking me in the shins and saying, stop it. <laughs> that is not okay. And then slowly you start to realize, oh, in my mind, I think I'm doing X, but really what's I'm being, what's communicated is Y. And so I think you can grow. Um, I'm glad you said that. I think you can grow in self-awareness. I just think that's really only going to happen with other people. So it's this kind of interesting both hands. Yeah, Catch-22. You can't have one without the other. No, I don't think so. So talking about the military and everything that you've gone through, what what needs to change? In Culture. Order, how Culture. Do we, how? Um, I think it starts with, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's one story at a time. It's one book at a time, one movie at a time. Um, it's more and more people who 
are willing to share their experiences to say, hey, I was, you know, a badass Navy SEAL or whatever, and I was really good at kicking down doors, and I was really lousy at being a husband, and I had to learn some hard lessons, and things got better. Um, it's more people sharing those stories because mine isn't the only one. My wife's and I, you know, our story is not the only one like that. Um, and then, you know, from a policy standpoint, it's you have to have um, policymakers, senior leaders um, who are willing to embrace the idea that identifying weakness, telling the truth about weakness isn't weak. That's actually an exhibition of strength. And what we have right now is we have a culture that is afraid. And it's very ironic because it's a culture that will posture itself as being a warrior masculine culture. But the reality is they're scared to death. I know guys who would, and I was one of them. I would rather you throw me out of a plane at 1500 feet with no parachute than force me to talk about my feelings. Are you kidding me? Like that's horrifying. And so you have a lot of people who are hiding behind um, masculinity and it's, it's not really actually all that masculine. It's a form of masculinity right? But it's not a complete form of it. And so there has to be cultural change, um, particularly within the special operations ranks, which, you know, um, special operations units across services, um, you know, comprise about 70,000 or so individuals. And those units, SEALs, Rangers, Delta, Green Berets, etc., um, they've basically been continuously deployed in war for the last 19 years. And our senior leaders have to wake up to the fact that at a certain point, um, you just can't put human beings in that much combat. They're not made for it. And um, you're seeing that now with the cultural degradation um, uh, of uh, elements, not all. I'm not, uh, the Navy SEALs are an amazing unit and there's a lot of amazing guys. But at a certain point, um, when people have had that much combat exposure and not uh, dealing with the mental and emotional toll that that can create, um, then it's not going to end well. And so um, in order for those units um, who are continuously in demand, in order for them to be strong, um, the reality of what war can do to the heart and soul, there has to be made allowances for that. And not every person, just like not every person who deploys eight times gets shot. Some people go to war a lot of times and they don't have any physical injuries. That's the same with our inner health. That's not necessarily a given. So we have to be really careful at looking at somebody's service record and saying, oh, geez, you know, you're in Iraq a lot. I bet you're kind of a screwball. That's not true. But just like there's allowances for our physical health to be cared for when we do get hurt, there has to be allowances and structures in place based on best practices for mental emotional health to be maintained as well. So um, there has to be a cultural change. And the best way to sum up the answer, the best way that I could tell your listeners of, of what that change needs to be is exemplified in two films. One film that I think you can still watch on Netflix called Let There Be Light. And it's a film that John Huston made um, in 1946, paid for by the War Department, in which he took a camera into a hospital uh, in Long Island, New York, that was for the folks who were dealing with the most severe post-traumatic stress. And Franklin Roosevelt, he identified it. He said, we owe it to every service member who serves in this war to return them back to their family as basically as, as close to who they were when they joined. And so you have John Houston beautifully and honestly showing the power of just acknowledging the fact that, hey, you were on Guadalcanal and your whole platoon was wiped out. And that's why you've lost the power of speech <laughs> because you're in trauma. And you see the change that happens in just a few weeks 
from guys who were for you know all along the spectrum of mental health but you see that just the camaraderie in the community um, and the health that can occur when those things are identified that film the night it was being uh, shown the night it was going to be premiered at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City before the reel could start military police marched in confiscated the reel and that film was never seen and classified until 1981 Wow um, the Reagan administration and the pretext that the military used for for doing that was they accused John Houston of not getting the authorization of those soldiers in that hospital to film them which wasn't true. Um, and the, the reality was it was a Cold War mindset that had taken over and they were afraid, there was leaders who were afraid of again, showing weakness. We need to gear up for the threat of communist Russia and we can't dare show uh, the, the true impact of war, which you see written on the faces of these guys who've been to Guadalcanal and they've been to Omaha Beach and you see that. The reality is, if you show that, you honor them, you honor their sacrifice, and you actually make your force more resilient because you're not hiding the wounds. So let there be light, classified, until the Reagan administration. It was actually first shown at the Cannes Film Festival in 1981. That film, and you can't make this up, Let There Be Light was replaced with a military film that I think you can still watch on YouTube called Shades of Grey. <laughs> and that film basically says, unless your mother coddled you and spoiled you, you should be perfectly fine uh, going and killing the communist horde. That's pretty much what it says. And so I highlight those films because they, they exemplify uh, the cultural shift. They exemplify a culture that could exist, a culture of honesty in which the force is actually strengthened and families are strengthened and actually people in uniform are honored um, because of truth uh, and a culture of deception and a culture of fear. And that culture is still in large part the culture that pervades our military. Mm. All right. So rapid fire questions here that I end with. What's the biggest lie in self-talk that you have had or currently struggle with? The biggest lie in self-talk, like um, things that I'm telling myself? Correct. Um, that it's all on me, that if I don't, if I don't do this, if I don't take care of this, um, that, you know, it's life or death if I don't perform whatever I'm supposed to perform. And it's not, that's, that's probably the biggest lie that I have to short circuit and stop and say, you're not that important. It's going to be okay. Go take 15 minutes and take a walk, clear your head. Uh, the problems will still be there and you'll still have a chance to solve them. It's going to be okay. What brings you peace? Prayer. Um, and being, I mean, I, I, I walk a lot and, um, nature is important to me, you know, being uh, in creation, um, is, is, is helpful and important to me. And, and that's, uh, that's definitely a source of peace. What's the best decision you've ever made? Um, marrying my wife twice. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. You had to do it again. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. The first marriage is way overrated. We, we got it. We were getting it right the second time. So. That's, that's funny. I paused. Stay on after I end this. Sure. Steven, my brother from the same hometown, same alma mater, man, I thoroughly enjoyed meeting you and hopefully this is the beginning to a friendship. I am so excited for the work that God has done in your life 
and your transparency and honesty and willingness to, to share your message so that others may, may also have healing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Evan. I really appreciate you having me. Take care. All right, too. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you would, I'd greatly appreciate you subscribing as well as rating and even leaving us an objective review. It helps us with our ratings and spreading the message of the Whole Person Podcast. And now, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you His favor and give you His peace. Thank you guys so much for listening today. Take care and God bless.